Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Columbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're here to start the week with us the right way. Your stool is prepared. We have good, good slash bad, or kind of pathetic, really, and also bad slash crazy for our third martini. A lot of slashes today, uh, but Jim, uh, I'll tell you what, uh, only smiles in the Queen City. Uh, Cincinnati, when they were down 21-3, to I don't think they had a ton of believers across the country, but their defense locked it down and got the job done, scored what they had to score, and uh, and beat the Chiefs in overtime to go to the Super Bowl yesterday, and then the, the Rams uh, with a comeback. They were down 10 in the fourth quarter. Uh, defeating the 49ers. So it's Bengals-Rams, just like we all drew it up at the beginning of the season and even at the beginning of the playoffs. So uh, we are 50% right on Friday, just not the one I was most sure of. Yeah, great. I think this is first of all, this could be a nice, pleasant, refreshing Super Bowl. I don't have an enormous dog in this fight between these two teams. I know a handful of Bengals fans and know that they have been suffering for a very long time. Uh, as somebody pointed out, there's nothing clearer about the post-Cold War consensus collapsing than the Bengals being in the Super Bowl again. <laughs> and uh, that really was, you know, I think it was, was it, it was 88 or was it 90 or so? It was, 88 you know, season, January of 89. Yep. There you go. So, um, you know, not since the first Bush have, have the Bengals been at this point. He's, obviously, he's a root for Joe Burrow. Looks like he's the next great rising star. Outdueling Patrick Mahomes on his home field is nothing, you know, is a major accomplishment. And then for the Rams with Matthew Stafford, it is this, you know, lovely redemption story that he really was that good in Detroit. And, uh, that, you know, we really, you know, sorry, I'm, I'm sorry for all the Detroit Lion fans out there. On the other hand, from what I can tell in my Twitter feed, a lot of them are just overjoyed for Matthew Stafford. He's like, he's like the the, the guy who got out of a bad neighborhood, <laughs> you know, and made it big and made it success, you know. Um, and I think because these are two teams that have not really been in the Super Bowl in a while. I know the Rams were there under McVay a couple of years back, but that one was a blowout. I think it's there's no. I, I don't know about you know. I'm sure if you're if you if your team plays one of these teams twice a year, maybe you hate them, but. I think most people don't have don't have strong feelings about these guys. It's just gonna be a good game, and we've had such phenomenal games for the last two weeks in the playoffs. That's just you know we just want to go and enjoy watching the game, and and you know hopefully have yet another closing minutes heart stopping thriller uh, to put the cap on a season that's been pretty satisfying. There's no Belichick to hate. There's no I noticed the Chiefs were starting to get into the uh, people were starting to, to resent them um, and Mahomes, and maybe I, I blame the State Farm commercials. I don't know. Aaron <laughs> Rodgers had become the the villain of everybody for his vaccination stance so they're really you know these are two relatively fresh teams and kind of exciting and uh we'll see how things go well jim on on saturday and we do we are we aren't just going to talk about sports i think jim had flipped over a couple of cars in his neighborhood in celebration that tom brady had retired and then we found out that he hasn't officially retired so jim i hope you've uh survived the emotional roller coaster although yeah if you hear pain in my voice it's that i pulled muscles putting the cars back <laughs> um once you flipped them and you realize oh wait he's not oh it's not an official <laughs> All right, hang on. Come on. Boys, get over here. I got to turn this car back. That's right. All right. On to our actual uh, content for today. Let's uh, talk about our first good martini. And uh, and it's also kind of got kind of a crazy martini. But uh, so far, Spotify is standing up uh, to the people who are losing their minds about the fact that they host Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan has some guests they don't like. He has some content uh, they don't like. Uh, and he's making a mint uh, from Spotify. And that mint 
tends to happen when you have 100 million downloads a month at least. And so, uh, yeah, Neil Young deciding, wow, Spotify, it's you or me, man. And they're like, okay, it's uh, it's going to be Rogan then. Bye. And then Joni Mitchell uh, apparently decided she <laughs> didn't want her music on there either. Then there was a rumor that apparently now was false about Barry Manilow. So who knows how much uh, momentum this is going to get. Spotify's not going to get hurt by losing those couple of people. Uh, so, Jim... Uh, the, the reason there's a good martini in, in all this, instead of this being a crazy martini, is uh, this guy Matthew Rosenberg, who writes for the New York Times, who actually has what I think is the right perspective here. It's a very simple tweet. Joe Rogan is what he is. We in the media might want to spend more time thinking about why so many people trust him instead of us. So some actual awareness from inside the halls of the New York Times about instead of uh, trying to everybody light their hair on fire and burn down Spotify if they don't fire Joe Rogan, which I don't think is going to happen, trying to figure out why people trust him more than the mainstream media, which I believe, Jim, is still uh, among the least trusted institutions in our country. And there's a lot of institutions people don't trust. So that's quite an achievement. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that kind of comes to mind is that Joe Rogan, for starters, isn't trying to censor anyone else. Joe Rogan isn't saying, I don't want you saying that stuff about mixed martial arts or drugs or bodybuilding or stuff like that. Joe Rogan, and if you listen, you know, in addition to having uh, doctors who you would characterize as being vaccine skeptics or maybe even COVID-19 vaccine opponents, he's also had CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta on there. And it was, it was I would say, a contentious argument. It got, got a little heat a discussion. It got heated. But Rogan's, you know, first of all, good for Gupta for going on the program and good for Rogan for having him on. And, and Rogan has all kinds of folks on his program. Rogan put up a short video that I think he just kind of, you know, succinctly explained. I think it articulates a good portion of his appeal and a good portion of perhaps why this issue has everybody ignited. By the way, it's worth noting, not all of Joe Rogan's programs are about the vaccines or COVID-19 or stuff like that. He talks about all kinds of subjects. And I think that's one of the things that makes people, you know, his regular subscribers so interested in them. Um, But he makes this point in this short video, and if you don't mind me quoting him for a short stretch here. The problem I have with the term disinformation, especially today, is that many of the things we we thought of as misinformation a short while ago are now accepted as fact. For instance, eight months ago, if you said if you get vaccinated, you can still catch COVID and you can still spread COVID, you would be removed from social media. They would ban you from certain platforms. Now, that's accepted as fact. Now, if you said, I don't think cloth masks work, you would be banned from social media. Now, that's openly and repeatedly stated on CNN. If you said, I think it's possible that COVID-19 came from a lab, you would be banned (laughs) from any social media platforms. And now that's on the cover of Newsweek. By the way, I think he meant New York Magazine or maybe some other magazine coming soon to a newsstand near you. Um, all of these theories at one point in time were banned, were openly discussed by those two men that I had in my podcast and been accused of dangerous misinformation. And I think here is where Rogan really kind of blows up this uh, caricature of him that has been painted by his critics, that idea that he's, I think they're really trying to run like an Alex Jones playbook against a guy who's really not Alex Jones, right? He says, I don't know if they're right. I don't know because I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I'm just a person who sits down and talks to people and has conversations with them. Do I get things wrong? Absolutely. I get things wrong, but I try to correct them. Whenever I get things wrong, I try to correct them because I'm interested in telling the truth. Greg, that should be the attitude of everybody in media. Right. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. look, everybody's a human being. Everybody's going to make mistakes. If you're a journalist, your job is to try to get the story right. 
you know, try really hard. It's, it's, it's considered a big no-no, a big mistake to do. But you're a human being. You're going to get something wrong. If you quickly make a correction, that restores faith. That restores trust, right? Um, and so I just everything I just laid out in this, this, this little monologue he put out, you know, this guy is supposed to be a dangerous megalomaniac who's indoctrinating people into this, you know, hardline ideology. You know, megalomaniacs don't often say, hey, I make mistakes. <laughs> you know, they're not big. The people who are trying to brainwash you don't often say, yeah, sometimes I get things wrong. That, that, that kind of humility really undermines this whole argument against Rogan. And there's just this huge leap from, you know, Joe Rogan, you're wrong on that. You shouldn't say that. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, it's a big step from there to Joe Rogan. You shouldn't have a podcast and Spotify. You have an obligation to take down his podcast. You are not allowed to have an audience. You're not allowed to say those things. We need to put economic pressure on you not to say that. Now, all of a sudden, we're in a different category. Now, all of a sudden, we're in a thing where, no, you're wrong. And I believe that my uh, information, my facts, my stuff that I can point to and verify, that's a story. At some point, the left basically doesn't believe that truth can, can dispel lies doesn't believe that, you know, good information can dispel bad information. And because of that, they think people have to be, quote unquote, protected from bad information or they prefer to call it misinformation or disinformation by these authority figures. Either the government has to come in and do it or pressured upon big, you know, uh, tech platforms like Spotify or YouTube or Facebook or Twitter or things like that. They need to protect you from these bad thoughts because you could end up having coming to bad conclusions. And it's, you know, just utterly infuriating. It's good to see the New York Times reporter asking that question. I think the replies to it indicated it's going to be a long, long time before they actually engage in any serious introspection. But so far, Joe Rogan is still on Spotify, and that's good news. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And you're right about the comments, too, to uh, Matt Rosenberg's tweet as well. Uh, one says, stop. Just another form of normalizing bigotry and foolishness. You should instead ask those people why they embrace bigotry and foolishness. And so on and on it goes. Because, you know, Twitter, it's really in the replies and comments where uh, the most good is done in uh, bridging divides yeah. and uh, bringing... Uh, foolishness. Ah, okay. <laughs> we need to come down on someone for foolishness because everything in your media diet would clear that path, that that uh, that, that litmus test of foolishness. Okay, got it. Exactly. And it's, it's also, I think, the freak out, obviously, is you've got mainstream outlets who can't even get a fraction of the audience that Joe Rogan does. Somebody was pointing out that Joe Rogan gets $100 million and uh, Jim Acosta, even in primetime, gets half a million. So, I mean, that's a pretty big disparity right there. And so uh, they they don't like losing control of the narrative. They don't like uh, information getting out there that uh, they've decided for some reason should not be out there. And so that Greg, makes, is, is that that people marks nervous. on my back, Jim Acosta? <laughs> yes. The guy who said, yes, I covered Trump and I have the marks on my back to show for it. Now, maybe he feels like he's been run over. Like, I, I don't know exactly where he's going with that metaphor. But the first thing that comes to mind is whipping. The first thing that comes to mind is, is you know, lashing at him you know I'm, I'm sure it sucked to be you know the cnn correspondent at trump events i'm sure he got called lots of nasty names i'm sure he gets hate mail i'm sure he gets nasty replies to him on twitter and stuff like that but you know what that's not being lashed jim acosta <laughs> get over yourself drama queen okay <laughs> On to our regular topics. I'll tell you what's not misinformation, though, Jim, is the high quality and excellence of the X chair. Everything <laughs> it promises, it delivers. Indeed, dear listeners, from the first moment I sat in my X chair, my body immediately said, ah, now this is what a real office chair is supposed to feel like. I never actually looked forward to sitting in my office until I got my X chair. Now, can your current office chair give you a massage while you're working? 
The X-Chair can. Can your current office chair heat up or cool down? My X-Chair can do that too. It's all in the LMAX massage and temperature regulation, exclusively designed and made for X-Chair. And once you feel the customized support of the X-Chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar, or DVL, your back will never be happy in any other chair again. High performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort. Those are all the reasons I love my X-Chair. Now I can't wait to be at work, and sometimes, even if I'm not working, I'll just sit at my desk in my X-Chair just to get that feeling. Take my advice, try the X-Chair for yourself, risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair should be, you will never go back, I promise. So go to xchairmartini.com right now, that's the letter X, chair, M-A-R-T-I-N-I.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 per month. One more time, xchairmartini.com. All right, Jim, on to our good slash pathetic martini for the day. The policy is good. Uh, the phrasing uh, is making us roll our eyes so hard we're going to sprain something here. This is from uh, Jamie McIntyre over at the uh, Washington Examiner. The two top senators on the Foreign Relations Committee are working together to craft a massive sanctions bill that incorporates the best ideas from both parties to deal a crippling blow to Russia's petroeconomy should President Vladimir Putin move against Ukraine. So the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee is our old friend Bob Menendez of New Jersey, the Democrat, uh, Jim Risch of Idaho, the Republican, both appeared on CNN yesterday to talk about these sanctions. And Menendez is the one in the clip here. And Jim, it seems like they uh, believe that they've got a way to let's just say provide some financial incentives for Putin to do the right thing here. But uh, what he calls this is pretty pathetic. Here we go. And so what I would say is what we are devising, building upon the legislation that both Senator Risch wrote independently and I wrote, uh, which I call the mother of all sanctions, it's to include a variety of elements, uh, massive sanctions against the most significant Russian banks, crippling to their economy, meaningful in terms of consequences to the average Russian and their accounts and pensions, uh, more lethal assistance to Ukraine. Well, if it comes to that, hopefully that would be a, a successful deterrent or at least inflict a whole lot of pain on Putin and his fellow oligarchs. But, Jim, the mother of all sanctions. It, of course, harkens back to Saddam Hussein promising the mother of all battles and obviously not delivering in uh, 1991 in the Gulf War. Then F. Lee Bailey promised the mother of all cross-examinations on Mark Furman. I mean, O.J. got off, so uh, I guess I guess it was successful in some ways. Uh, mother of all bombs, of course, is my favorite. That seemed to be a fairly effective uh, weapon of war. But uh, it's a pretty tired phrase that ought to be retired at this point, I think. I was going to say, when I first saw that, I was like, oh, here we go. Another 20-something millennial. Actually, I guess they're Generation Z at that point. Another generation who doesn't know history, doesn't understand what that phrase is, and doesn't understand that the mother of all battles did not turn out that well for Saddam Hussein. <laughs> Uh, I guess you can make an argument, F. Lee Bailey, the, the cross-examination of Furman, did turn out pretty well for the defense team for O.J. Simpson. But Senator Menendez knows what he's talking about. Like, he's he's old enough. He's, uh, you know, smart enough. And look, you and I have given him a lot of grief, deservedly so. But on this one, we think he's right. The policy is pretty good. And basically, there's probably not a sanction you could throw at Putin or Russia that is a bad idea right now. Um, the only thing I think, you, you think about, like, you know, words and phrases that have a particular origin. 
I'm sure at some point you could probably find me say, using the phrase, you know, uh, drank the Kool-Aid, right? Now, it all comes from Jim Jones and Jonestown. And if you've ever really read or watched a documentary on that stuff, that's some really horrific stuff. Mass suicides and kids being encouraged to drink something that's going to kill themselves. Like that, that's horrible, horrible stuff. And once you hear that, you're like, Ugh, maybe I don't want to use that metaphor anymore. It's, it's, it's a little too serious, a little too dark, uh, not something you can, you know, you know, scoff at or something like that. And there are other things that are just kind of fascinating that strike me as common knowledge or, or the sort of thing that a well-read person would recognize. Oh, that's where that's from. And they don't recognize it. My favorite example of this came years and years ago, Greg, and I still give my friends grief about this. I made a reference to Idi Amin eating people. Oh yeah. And this is for, for those who've seen the film, the last King of Scotland, Idi Amin was this dictator out in, in I think it was Uganda. Uganda right? it was, it was yeah. out, and he ate people. He, he was a cannibal. He, he was a maniac. He would, you know, cut off that. It was, you know, every, every story you could ever imagine of some maniacal dictator uh, losing his marbles and doing terrible things to people pretty much was true in the case of Idi Amin. Um, and yes, for the you know, sort of detail that our listeners would appreciate, Idi Amin is one of the bad guys that Frank Drebin beats up in the opening scene of The Naked Gun. <laughs> uh, but by the 80s and 90s, I guess people had not, this had not, until until The Last King of Scotland came out, people had kind of forgotten who Idi Amin was and that he had done such sort of terrible So I made this like, ah, oh, you know, that restaurant has the last, had the worst food since the buffet at Idi, Idi Amin's house. Nobody got the joke. Nobody understood this, stood what this was. So I ended, up giving, I ended up giving them like real grief about not being, and these are people who are like, international affairs majors. These are really smart people, some of whom who now work for the State Department, who had not heard of Idi Amin. So I, I, you know, so it's kind of fascinating the things that are considered common knowledge. And Menendez must know that when you say the mother of all blanks, it is the, you know, a, a reference to a statement from Saddam Hussein, which in, besides being a memorable phrase, was a spectacularly inaccurate phrase or a sign that, you know, in the end, the Iraqi army uh, you know, we all remember the images of the highway of death. It did not go out very well for the Iraqi army as well, at all. So, you know, probably not the metaphor I would have chosen with. Good for you on the policy, Senator Menendez. Talk to your communications guy. There's got to be a better way to describe these policies than that. Yes, I would think so. I would think so. All right. Well, as you're waiting to come up with a better catchphrase for your legislation, I mean, usually nowadays you've got a tortured acronym to be the title of your legislation that doesn't even necessarily really cover what you're talking about, but the acronym's really cool, so you keep that. Uh, but while you're trying to figure that out and the, all the interns and the low-level staffers who you don't pay anything try to figure out all the catchphrases, uh, give them some my pillows, uh, Pillows, sheets, towels, slippers, the whole nine yards. And right now, you can get a fantastic deal on the Giza Dream Sheets. I absolutely love the Dream Sheets. Uh, they're the best sheets we have. Every time it's time to wash them, uh, you know, as soon as they come out of the dryer, put them right back on. Best sheets that we have. Absolutely love them. You're not going to want to sleep on anything else. And for a limited time, you can get, get this, 60, 60% off any Giza Dream Sheets with a price as low as $39.99. Now, the Giza Dream Sheets are made from the world's best cotton, which is grown only in a region between the Sahara Desert, the Mediterranean Sea, and the Nile River. The long staple cotton makes these sheets ultra soft and breathable. The sateen weave gives a luxurious finish. The sheets are available in a variety of colors and sizes. They're machine washable, and they come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. There is a four-inch hem on the flat sheet and the pillowcases, and the fitted sheet has fully enclosed elastic hems with deep pockets. High quality stuff and now at a fantastic discount. So save 60% 
right now with the Giza Dream Sheets flash sale. Go to MyPillow.com, then click on the Radio Listener Square, and when you're at that Radio Listener Square, use the promo code MARTINI at checkout. Or call 800-874-0104 to get the Giza Dream Sheets for as low as $39.99. You'll also find deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the MyPillow mattress topper, MyPillow towel sets, and so much more. These will be gone in a flash. That's why they call it a flash sale. So head to MyPillow.com, promo code MARTINI, or call 800-874-0104. Sleep better with MyPillow.com. All right, Jim, it's not often that we have a martini that could be bad, could be good, could be crazy, yet somehow this one is... Got its fingers in, in all three of those categories. Uh, Javier Becerra is the Secretary of Health and Human Services. That's a bad thing. We talked about him not being at all qualified for that job. He was a, a congressman, one of Pelosi's uh, lieutenants, and uh, then he became Attorney General of uh, California. And then somehow that translated into him being qualified to run the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, apparently he's not, at least not in a way that's making the uh, West Wing very happy. Washington Post reporting, quote, White House officials have grown so frustrated with top health official Javier Becerra as the pandemic rages on that they have openly mused about who might be better in the job, although political considerations have stopped them from taking steps to replace him, officials said. Oh, kind of ironic since political considerations are the reason he has the job. Uh, Top White House officials have had an uneasy relationship with Becerra since early in President Biden's term, but their dissatisfaction has escalated in recent months as the Omicron variant has sickened millions of Americans in a fifth pandemic wave amid confusing and sometimes conflicting messages from top health officials. That brought scrutiny to Biden's strategy, according to three administration figures. The frustration with Becerra comes as top White House and health officials face growing criticism for health messaging missteps, as well as controversial policies about coronavirus testing and isolation. So, uh, Jim, we said, you know, filling this cabinet under criteria other than who would be really good at doing this job has not turned out well for this administration. they got a lot of problems, and some of them are due to the fact that they pick people due to uh, race, sex, orientation, and other things instead of, hey, you know who would be really good at this job would be this person. Yeah. I mean, there, when, when Biden named a lot of his cabinet folks, a lot of them were the sort of figures you'd expect to be in the cabinet. But it is almost as if he had picked names out of a hat and just randomly assigned them to cabinet posts as opposed to whatever matched their experience and alleged areas of expertise. And I think the best example was, I think at one point, Representative, former Congresswoman Marsha Fudge had said she didn't want to be Secretary of HUD. And then she was named Secretary of HUD. You know, um, Susan Rice becoming domestic policy advisor after spending her whole career in foreign policy. It was a really weird selection of folks. And in the case of... Javier Becerra, the only, you know, he'd been California Attorney General. He'd filed a bunch of lawsuits about abortion. Beyond that, he didn't really, he'd never, you know, done much in healthcare or, or health and human services. He was, he was, he had certainly had no medical background. Certainly had no, not much healthcare policy background. Um, you, you know, as much as I would have opposed him, he would at least on paper have been a more suitable. His work, his life experience would have fit better at the Department of Justice, even at. Uh, than it is at HHS, even though I can, under, I can hear listeners saying, oh, dear God, don't put <laughs> Javier Becerra anywhere near the Department of exactly. Justice. But you're just kind of looking at this. And I, I went back and I checked and I just put up a corner post on this. Like, like everybody, certainly everybody on the right, and it was not that hard to find some folks who were not on the right. I don't know if you're going to say center or left, who basically looked at this like, uh, 
Sarah really doesn't fit the profile of the kind of person you'd want to run at HHS. And even if you want to say, okay, it's an ideological, uh, conservatives don't like him because he's an ardent pro-abortion guy and he's fought pro-lifers over everything. And even if you want to put all that stuff aside, the California Attorney General's, General's office, it's, it's not small, but it's certainly nowhere near as large as the Department of Health and Human Services, which effectively runs the entire healthcare system, or at least regulates the entire healthcare system of the entire country. Meaning that this was a much bigger job and a much bigger managerial job than he was. And oh, by the way, this wasn't just any old ordinary time. Maybe Becerra could have like learned on the job better in, in an ordinary, but we're doing this in the middle of a pandemic. And that's what the focus of this big Washington Post story is, is that boy, you know, this you know on paper you see these just you know confusing messaging from the cdc doesn't necessarily match up with what fauci is saying in his interviews fda is taking forever to approve certain things and they change the guidance on who should get a booster you know, all of this stuff everybody in this in, in that group reports to javier becerra on paper he should be the guy who's coordinating all this and is it possible that this article in the washington post is using him as a scapegoat for the broader administration failures on this I, I could see that argument you know you could make the point that he's doesn't deserve all the grief that's coming his way on the other hand man oh man this article says it has 28 uh, sources inside and outside the administration um you know 28 senior administration officials health agency officials outside advisors and experts most of whom spoke on the condition of anonymity to detail sensitive discussions and some of the it, it's almost a kamala harris right if that's a 10 <laughs> In the, you know, in the uh, leaking, damaging leaks and lack of faith of your colleagues, this one is, is you know, probably about an eight or a nine. Quote, unquote, the this health secretary is taking too passive a role in what be the most defining challenge to the administration, said one senior administration official. Um, now, if this ends up with Javier Becerra being replaced, this is a good martini, right? This is good news. This right. is a, a recognition that he's a bad fit. This isn't working. It's time to get somebody who's better qualified and just understands the job better than he is. The, to the tone of this article makes it sound like Biden does not want to, to do that, in part because he does not want to uh, make changes. He doesn't like to admit mistakes. And, uh, you know, this would be seen as a giant concession, the same way he's not going to get rid of Kamala Harris between now and uh, the 2024 election. It, it's kind of crazy, though, in that everybody said, this is not going to work out. This is not the right guy for this job. And the Biden said, no, trust me, I know what I'm doing. This guy's a great match. <laughs> Here we are a year later. No, he was terrible. He was. This is not a good match, Mr. President. You, think, you know, your own people are saying this guy is not the right guy for the job. It's really kind of spectacular. You know, yet another spectacular implosion. Maybe a little more under the radar than some of the other things like Afghanistan and not having enough tests ready and, and things like that. But man, oh man, um, a lot. You know, everyone's okay. All right, perfect metaphor as we head into Super Bowl uh, weekend two weeks <laughs> from now. Greg, way back in the mid to late 90s, Rich Kotite, arguably the worst coach in NFL history. Adam Gase can give him a, a good run for his money. Rich Kotite said that the New York Jets were going to run a double tight end offense as their standard. Now, for those who don't follow football, the double tight end, you'd use it in a special you know, circumstances, you know, probably for running downs. Or Very few teams were going to use a double tight end as their standard set. And, you know, the, the reaction of the New York media was rather skeptical. Wait, why? Nobody does that anymore. What are you talking about? You know, and Richie Kotite said, you, we're going to surprise some people. You wait and see. And the Jets went 3-13 and 13 his first year, and they went 1-15 his second year. <laughs> it did not work. Sometimes you can see people walking towards a terrible disaster. And you're like, don't do that. And he's like, no, no, trust me. I know what I'm doing. I know what's best. Yeah, I know you. Trust me. I've got the, in, the inside track. I know what's going on. 
and then they fall flat on their face. And that's kind of what we're seeing with President Biden, although I guess, Greg, at this point, it's starting to seem kind of habitual, doesn't it? Well, I'm going to start seeing Joe Biden rich co-type memes, apparently, after all this now. I wonder if this goes back to the Biden-Harris feud, though, because, you know, uh, Becerra is kind of a Harris guy. Uh, he followed her as attorney general of California. And if there's ever been an indication that the president who just nominated you might not have your back through thick and thin, it's when he calls you Xavier Bacaria when he announces your nomination to the American people. That's a good point. Yeah, maybe maybe Biden wasn't all that familiar with, uh, with that. I, I mean, the sneaking suspicion is that there, there was a perception in the administration, either with Biden or with Prime Minister Ron Klain or somebody, like, no, look, we really need a high-profile Latino. Let's let's do let's. Becerra is good. We'll use him. And where can we put him? Ah, HHS. Let's put him in there. Boom. And that's where we ended up. Where we are. You'd hate to think that's the mentality here, but like, look, what are the odds, Greg, that the President of the United States would have an enormously important position and specifically say, I'm only going to give this job to somebody who has the right ethnicity or gender? Come on, (laughs) what kind of president would do that? I can think of one in particular. He does it all the time. Happy Monday, Jim. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Please tell your friends about us as well. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. They really do help us a lot. Get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Monday, and please join us on Tuesday for the next 3 Martini Lunch. We are living in difficult times where people fear having thought-provoking conversations about pressing issues. And although we're in the midst of an information explosion, there are a lot of forces aiming to distort what's true. I created The Bill Walton Show to provide a forum for in-depth, thought-provoking conversations with leaders, artists, entrepreneurs, and thinkers. Please join me at thebillwaltonshow.com to explore what's true, what's right, and what's next.